This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 170th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, November 29th, and this episode is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Andrew Bike, Damon Huss, David Soul, Juniper, and Luther Yee. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's show, we'll talk about the bombshell climate change report the Trump administration tried to bury and we'll hear his explanation as to why he denies the science of climate change. And while we're on the topic of climate change, Bernie Sanders explains exactly what needs to be done if we want any action on this issue. We'll also talk about more cruelty with regard to migrants from Honduras at the border, how Trump's tax plan is failing workers, why Bernie Sanders is the only 2020 candidate that knows how to beat Trump, how centrist Democrats are desperately trying to make Beto 2020 a thing, and we'll talk about leadership failures within the Democratic Party when it comes to Chuck Schumer and how House Democrats rejected Barbara Lee for a leadership position. And additionally, just 18 Democrats in the House are refusing to back the joint resolution that would restore net neutrality. I'll tell you why that's the case, and we'll end the show on a good note as Bernie Sanders' goal of ending U.S. support to Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen has advanced in the United States Senate, and we'll also poke some fun at a right-wing goofball who shared his theory as to why dinosaurs supposedly went extinct. So that's what we have on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and uh, get into it. This is what Donald Trump decided to tweet out the day before Thanksgiving. Quote, brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records. Whatever happened to global warming? Yeah, this is just becoming sad at this point because what we just read was the most powerful human being on the planet admit that he's still an idiot, admit that he still denies the reality of anthropogenic climate change. And in that tweet, he's communicating to us that he still doesn't know that there's a difference between weather and climate. And furthermore, he's talking about extreme weather patterns, which are actually a result of climate change. But nonetheless, that didn't stop him from tweeting out this insanely ignorant thing about climate change in a condescending way to suggest that he somehow got scientists with this idiotic tweet. And look, while I'm not one to speculate about whether or not everything Donald Trump says is a pre-planned strategic calculation, it's obvious that the reason why he made this tweet at this very convenient time for him was in order to spread misinformation and obfuscate ahead of what would be a bombshell report that his own administration would be releasing the very next day about just how devastating climate change will be not just to human life but the u.s economy and it bears repeating that again this was released 
on the Friday after Thanksgiving. This was originally scheduled to be released in December, but I think if we connect the dots, we'll see why he decided to release this report the day after a major US holiday. It's because he wanted to hide it. So while we were all in our turkey comas and celebrating and shopping, you know, and doing our Black Friday hunt for the deals, this is when they decided to drop this report in order to hide it away from the public. But unfortunately for him, we're still going to dive into the report because what it says about climate change goes along with what the IPCC said just a couple of weeks ago, that we need to act. Now, as CNN's Jen Christensen and Michael Nettleman explain, a new U.S. government report delivers a dire warning about climate change and its devastating impacts, saying the economy could lose hundreds of billions of dollars or, in the worst-case scenario, more than 10% of its GDP by the end of the century. The costs of climate change could reach hundreds of billions of dollars annually, according to the report. The Southeast alone will probably lose over half a billion labor hours by 2100 due to extreme heat. Higher temperatures will also kill more people, the report says. The Midwest alone, which is predicted to have the largest increase in extreme temperature, will see an additional 2,000 premature deaths per year by 2090. Wildfire seasons, already longer and more destructive than before, could burn up to six times more forest area annually by 2050 in parts of the United States. Burned areas in southwestern California alone could double by 2050. Dependable and safe water for Hawaii, the Caribbean, and others are threatened by these rising temperatures. Along the U.S. coasts, public infrastructure and $1 trillion in national wealth held in real estate are threatened by rising sea levels, flooding, and storm surges. By mid-century, it's likely that the Arctic will lose all sea ice in late summer, and that could lead to more permafrost thaw, according to the report. As the permafrost thaws, more carbon dioxide and methane would be released amplifying human-induced warming possibly significantly. Now, the study itself doesn't necessarily say how we can combat climate change. It just simply states we've got to take action. Otherwise, the consequences will be absolutely devastating. Now, if you are the president of the United States, if you're Donald Trump and you deny climate change and just see that your government, the government that you oversee as president of the United States, just released this multi-agency report about how devastating climate change will be if we don't act. How are you supposed to respond to that if your own government makes you look like a fool? Well, if you're Donald Trump, this is exactly how you respond. Yeah, I don't believe it. No, no, I don't believe it. And, and here's the other thing. You're going to have to have China and Japan and all of Asia and all of these other countries, you know, addre addresses our country. Right now, we're at the cleanest we've ever been. And that's very important to me. But if we're clean, but every other place on Earth is dirty, that's not so good. So I want clean air. I want clean water. Very important. So in other words, I don't believe it. And even if I did believe it, I wouldn't want to take action because... Why should the United States cut carbon emissions if other countries like China, Russia, India are all just going to free ride? Yeah, you know, if only there was something you could do about that as president of the United States, Don. The thing is that Donald Trump doesn't want to take action on climate change. And what little progress we made over the last eight years, Donald Trump undid all of that unilaterally within the last two years. Now, you might initially take comfort in hearing the president say, 
I want clean air. I want clean water. Very important. Now, at face value, that may seem comforting, right? Because it's just the bare minimum. But the problem is that that's still nothing more than rhetoric because Donald Trump's administration has gutted regulations that protect our drinking water. He's also dismantled rules that stopped companies from releasing harmful chemicals into the air. So even if he's saying he wants clean air and clean drinking water, even if that may soothe you a little bit, you should still be afraid because what this guy is doing is the complete opposite of what he said. At the end of the day, actions speak louder than words. And what Donald Trump has done is... Time and again, he sided with the large multinational corporations. He sided with the oil and gas industry in order to allow them to continue ruining the planet in order to increase profits. Now, this is probably the part of the video where you'd expect me to tell you how stupid Donald Trump and the Republicans are, and that's true, they are stupid. And, you know, their scientific illiteracy is literally going to get us all killed. It's going to make the planet uninhabitable. But this isn't necessarily the product of stupidity entirely. The reason why Republicans deny the existence of anthropogenic climate change is because they are corrupt. They are paid to not take action on climate change. They are paid to deny climate change in the form of tens of millions of dollars in campaign contributions every single election cycle. Oil and gas companies spend millions of dollars every single year, sometimes surpassing $100 million to lobby mostly Republicans in order to get them to continue denying the existence of climate change. So the reason why Republicans are playing dumb when it comes to the issue of climate change is so that way their donors can continue profiting off of pollution and profiting off of ruining the planet, even if that means the planet may become uninhabitable as a result of their destruction. But if you're a Republican, how do you respond to the charge of what I'm saying here that they're just nothing more than paid shills and that's why they deny climate change? Well, you'd say, no, you, because that's exactly what Rick Santorum did on CNN. Look, if there was no climate change, we'd have a lot of scientists looking for work. Uh, the reality is that that a lot of these scientists are driven by the money that they receive. And of course, they don't receive money from corporations and Exxon and the like. Why? Because they're not allowed to because it's tainted. But they can receive it from people who have who support their agenda. And that's what and, and that, I believe, is what's really going on here. I, no one doubts that the climate is changing. No one doubts that. The question is, how much does man contribute? Number one. And number two, what can man do to actually change it? And those are the two big issues which we really don't talk about. First of all, when he says no one doubts the climate is changing, that's just wrong. The president does. Second of all, when he says the reality is a lot of these scientists are driven by the money they receive, what he's telling you is it's not the Republican Party who's corrupt. It's actually the scientists who are corrupt. That's why they're producing these studies that show climate change is a problem and if we don't act the consequences will be devastating it's because the scientists not the politicians contrary to popular belief who are controlled by oil and gas companies are the ones who are actually driven by profit and understand that this fuckface had the nerve to go so far as to outline the parameters of the discussion and tell scientists what they believe in suggesting, well, you know, we're still trying to figure out whether or not climate change is man-made. Well, guess what, dipshit? You're not a scientist. We figured it out. And when I say we, I mean the scientists 
And they've determined that climate change is absolutely driven by human activity. Now it's a matter of whether or not we're going to take action. You don't get to tell scientists what they believe, but if you're a Republican like Rick Santorum, then it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Up is down, left is right, everything is backwards, or in this case, corruption is actually driven by big science and not big oil. Republicans will be the first to tell you that there's just not enough evidence that Climate change is anthropogenic. It's a phenomenon that's driven by human activity. But yet, there's certainly more than enough evidence to confirm the existence of their god. There's evidence for that. Not enough evidence for climate change just yet. Look, here's what it comes down to. Either we take action or we risk going extinct. As the IPCC warned just a couple of weeks ago, we've got a little more than a decade left to act if we want to avert a climate catastrophe. But these fossil fuel shills, otherwise known as the Republican Party, want you to disregard the evidence. Trump wants you to disregard the report his own administration produced. Now, as much as I'd love to tell you that since government clearly is not going to take action, it rests on our shoulders. As human beings, we, as individuals, need to take action and reduce our carbon footprints. But the problem is that that's not really a realistic solution to climate change because the reality is that just 100 corporations account for 71% of the world's emissions, according to a recent report from CDP. And that means the problem is going to be something that governments are best equipped to deal with, not normal human beings, not individuals. Now, what we can do as individuals is put pressure on our government through collective action, through grassroots organizing, in order to get them to act. But if we're going to do that, if we're all going to come together and coalesce around this one big issue, we've got to do it quickly. The climate isn't going to wait for anyone. And if we are going to take action and mobilize, we've got to do it quickly because we are running out of time here. So as you all know, President Donald Trump has been upfront about the fact that he is a climate change denier. He said previously that it was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. And last week on Friday, when his own administration released a report saying that climate change will not only shrink the U.S. economy, but kill thousands of people every single year, he denied that report saying, quote, I don't believe it. So, in an interview with Josh Dossie of the Washington Post, he gave us a little bit more insight as to why he's a climate change denier, and what he said made absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, I'm going to read to you the transcript, but bear with me because this is comparable to how we would expect a caveman to talk. He says, one of the problems that a lot of people like myself, we have very, <laughs> we have very high levels of intelligence, but we're not necessarily such believers, you know, because people who are intelligent definitely make sure that they reassure themselves how intelligent they are. You look at our air and our water, and it's right now at a record clean. <laughs> but when you look at China, and you look at parts of Asia, and when you look at South America, and when you look at many other places in this world, including Russia, including just many other places, the air is incredibly dirty. And when you're talking about an atmosphere, oceans... <laughs> oceans are very small. <laughs> Oh, okay. Wow. And it blows... 
and it blows over. <laughs> it's not that funny. It's, it's really not that funny, but uh, oceans are very small. That <laughs> that got me. Okay. Whew. And it blows over and it sails over. I, I mean, we take thousands. <laughs> I mean, we take thousands. <laughs> I'm literally crying. This is not that funny. I should probably not even upload this, but let's just roll with it. I mean, we take th thousands of tons of garbage off of our beaches all the time. <laughs> that comes over from Asia. It just flows right down the Pacific. <laughs> It flows, and we say, where does it come from? And it takes many people to start off with. <laughs> I am failing you to read this, but... That comment about oceans being very small... I don't know what it was about that, but that just... <laughs> that got me, okay? <laughs> I need to take some time to compose myself. What he's saying here is nothing more than obfuscation. He doesn't want to answer the question. Remember that the original question was, why do you not believe this report that your own administration produced, that 13 government agencies produced? Why do you not believe that? And he went on to talk about oceans are very small. I need to not look at that because it's going to make me um, laugh again and I'm finally over it. So, so obviously... Um, what he's saying here is barely coherent, to put it as nicely as I possibly can. I mean, you could try to extrapolate certain things out of what he's saying if you connect the dots, but a lot of it is just pure bullshit. Now, I was originally intending to kind of go through line by line here and explain to you why he's lying about this or that, but the whole thing is just absurd. So I want to get to another paragraph here where he kind of goes on to explain further why he denies climate science. Number two, if you go back and if you look at articles, they talked about global freezing. They talked about at some point the planets could have freeze to <laughs> Oh God, could have freeze to death. Then it's going to die of heat exhaustion. There is movement in the atmosphere. There's no question as to whether or not it's man-made and whether or not the effects that you're talking about are there. I don't see it. Not nearly like it is. Do we want clean water? Absolutely. Do we want clean air to breathe? Absolutely. The fire in California, where I was, if you looked at the floor, the floor of the fire, they have trees that were fallen. They did no forest management, no forest maintenance, and you can light, you can take a match like this and light a tree trunk when that thing is laying there for more than 14 or 15 months. And it's a massive problem in California. Again, what he's saying here is not attached to reality at all and i don't even know if he is intentionally trying to lie or if he's just rambling on about whatever bullshit pops into his head but what he's saying doesn't make any sense we have one more paragraph here you go to other places where they have denser trees it's more dense where the trees are more flammable they don't have forest fires like this because they maintain and it was very interesting i was watching the firemen and they're raking brush <laughs> oh god they're raking brush you know the tumbleweed and brush and all this stuff that's growing underneath it's on fire and they're raking it 
working so hard and they're raking all <laughs> and they're raking all this stuff. If that was raked in the beginning, there'd be nothing to catch on fire. It's very interesting to see. A lot of the trees, they took tremendous burn at the bottom, but they didn't catch on fire. The bottom is all burned out, but they didn't catch on fire because they sucked the water. They're wet. <laughs> you need forest management and they don't have it. So, um... They sucked the water. They're wet. There are so many gems in this. And I'm laughing because it's so stupid. But at the same time, it's really sad because his stupidity is going to get us all killed. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what, what can you do besides laugh? Because I don't know how else to respond to this level of delusion and absurdity. He's talking about raking brush to stop forest fires like if you clean the forests and you maintain them better then that will help okay e even if you bought into this theory it's not it's not correct it's just not true but even if he bought into that wouldn't you not want to cut funding to forest management because his administration did just that so i mean the solutions that he's proposing he's failing to acknowledge that he's been problematic in accomplishing what he thinks will solve this crisis. I mean, the guy is a fucking idiot. I'm honestly shocked that he remembers to breathe every single day. Because this is pure insanity, what we are reading here. And this isn't just, you know, any individual. I would be shocked if I read this and I didn't know who, who said this. Um, I'd be shocked to learn that it was a toddler. But this is the President of the United States saying this. Someone who actually has the power and influence needed to take action on climate change. When asked about why he denies climate science, he says things like, They sucked the water. They're wet. And, um... Oceans are very small. I mean, my toddler nephew who is four years old i think that he is someone who i can have a more coherent conversation with than donald trump i mean i've never spoken with donald trump thankfully but just hearing him speak like i this is embarrassing and people around the world they probably hear him say things like this and they think wow most americans must be stupid to elect someone like this I mean, I don't, um, I don't think they're wrong to judge us that way based on who we have as our leader. So when you take into consideration the IPCC's report from about a month ago that gives humanity about 12 years to act if we want to avert a climate catastrophe, along with the multi-agency report recently released by the U.S. government that says if we don't act not only will the U.S. economy suffer due to climate change, but it's going to kill thousands of people every single year. It seems as if, as if the situation is um, it's not looking too good for humanity. So 
I think that there's a select few politicians in the country that not only understand the urgency in terms of our need to act, but also understands what could galvanize support for legislation that would actually target and mitigate and potentially help us even adapt to the effects of climate change. And those people are Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, perhaps any Democrat who's co-sponsoring or supporting, rather, her Green New Deal initiative, and Bernie Sanders, who is realizing that, look, since we're not acting when it comes to climate change because we're worried about the economic ramifications, if we take swift action, he's framing the debate in an economic way. And I think that that is absolutely the correct way to win over support. So here's what he said about climate change in an interview with John Berman on CNN. There was a report, as you know, that just came out last week from 13 government agencies, which is dealing with the crisis facing us in terms of climate change. Yep. And what these agencies are telling us, if we do not get our act together and cut in a significant way carbon emissions, what you're going to look at, be looking at are more wildfires like we have seen in California. Uh, you're going to see more rising sea levels. You're going to see more drought and more flooding. We have got to address that issue. And that was a report. It was released by the Trump administration on the Friday after Thanksgiving. Reluctantly released by the Trump administration. Maybe on a Friday after Thanksgiving to minimize the impact it had. But my question for you is, with only a Democratic House, a Republican Senate, a Republican president, what legislation, what do you want to see politicians in Washington do practically now? But you see, you're using the word practically. Do you know what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said? They said that if we don't get our act together within 12 years, 12 years, not a long period of time, there's going to be irreparable harm to this planet. So the point is, the American people have got to stand up and say that for the sake of their children and their grandchildren, we have got to have to take on the greed of the fossil fuel industry who consider their short-term profits more important than the kind of lives my grandchildren are going to have. You don't have to convince me that it's a serious issue. You have to convince Republicans in the no, Senate I have and to Republicans convince, in the White House. No, I have to convince the American people to tell Republicans. So we have an international crisis. We've got to work with other countries around the world. And here's the good news, John. When we do that, we're going to create millions of jobs through increasing energy efficiency and moving toward wind, solar, and other sustainable energy. Look, here's the point. The scientists have told us, despite Trump's absurd thought that this is a hoax, that the future of the planet is at stake. Mm -hmm. Okay, not a debatable issue to my mind. So we have got to have the courage to take on the greed of the fossil fuel industry. And by the way, if the House can send us a serious bill, I think you will be surprised at the number of Republicans who will not choose to be voting against it. So what he said there is crucial. The government's not going to act when it comes to climate change. These reports that keep getting released that essentially warn us about how climate change is going to wipe out thousands of species, pose an existential threat to humanity, that's not going to compel them. The facts, the science is not going to get these Republicans who have been bought off by the oil and gas industry to suddenly change their mind. Because... A lot of these Republican Party politicians, let's face it, to be blunt, they're going to die soon. They're super old. 
So they don't necessarily care because they're not going to see the worst of what climate change has, has to offer. But millennials like myself, when we're their age, our lives are going to be hell because we're already seeing the effects of climate change. Unprecedented wildfires in California, rising sea levels already that's affecting small island communities. It's going to be bad. And in our lifetimes, we may witness wars over water. So we absolutely have to act. But these reports that warn us of all the terrible things that will come to fruition as a result, as a result of climate change, that's not going to convince Republicans. So what Bernie Sanders says here is exactly what needs to happen. Quote, the American people have got to stand up and say, for the sake of their children and grandchildren, we are going to have to take on the greed of the fossil fuel industry, who consider their short-term profits more important than the lives of my grandchildren. And he added, I have to convince the American people to tell Republicans to take action. That's what's going to get them to take action. We can't wait for us to have campaign finance reform and get money out of politics so that way they're uncorrupted. We don't have time. Our only move, if we want action, is to mobilize, is to stand up, is to do what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did and hundreds of activists did who occupied Nancy Pelosi's office and demanded that she take action. And you know what? That worked. Because she immediately offered to reinstate a committee on climate change. Now look, that's just a baby step in the right direction, but it's a snapshot of what could happen if we were to see that level of dedication and mobilization on a national level. Can you imagine if in every single major city of this country, hundreds of thousands of Americans marched and demanded action on climate change? It would really make a pretty big difference. And certainly, I don't think we would convince every single Republican. I don't even think we'd convince a majority of Republicans. But what we would do is scare the shit out of them. What we would do is draw attention to an issue that gets ignored all too often, given the salience of this issue. I mean, this is the existence of not just humanity, but thousands of species on the planet that's at stake here that could go extinct if we don't act. Rising sea levels, ocean acidification, desertification, food and water shortages. I mean, it's a nightmare situation. And even if it's easy for us to kind of put it out of our heads, because that's way down the line, Imagine how angry future generations are going to be at us for not taking action. Imagine how angry we're going to be at ourselves when we're older and we see how fucked up the planet is. Another thing Bernie says here, which is really an important component, is he talks about the economic opportunity that is presented to us with climate change. He says, we're going to create millions of jobs through increasing energy efficiency and moving towards wind, solar, and other sustainable energy. That's important because if you frame this in terms of the economic benefits of climate change, I think that moves the Overton window because up till this point, we've only been talking about the downside of climate change reform with regard to the economy. Oh, this will lead to lost profits and lost jobs. 
But what Bernie Sanders is saying here, and I think he's one of the first people to say this, is that no, you're looking at it all wrong. You're thinking about this in an antiquated way. What climate change does is it prevents us with an opportunity to be a world leader, to be a driving force in the international economy when it comes to green and clean and renewable technology. But we're not acting because the fossil fuel industry has bought off an entire party. It's bought off some Democrats, not to the point where they'll deny the existence of anthropogenic climate change, but certainly bought them off to the point where they'll shut up. Now, the one thing that Bernie Sanders said in this interview that kind of caught me off guard was that he indicated that in the event the House were to send the Senate a solid climate change bill, it might actually pass in the Senate. I have no idea what he's talking about because I wouldn't necessarily expect that to be the case given that Republicans still control the Senate and they are bought and paid for by the oil and gas industry, but it's Bernie. So maybe he has something up his sleeve. Maybe he's going to call for mobilization. Maybe the Democratic Party has a plan that is being led by Bernie Sanders, or maybe he's strong-arming them to do something in the event. Maybe he's planning something. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but that certainly caught me off guard. Um, I'm skeptical. I think maybe Bernie Sanders is being a bit more optimistic than I am here. Maybe I'm just too cynical, but look, if that's the case, that would be wonderful. Would Donald Trump sign it? Not necessarily, unless we put pressure on him. But I think that the main thing, or the main two things, really, that Bernie Sanders is saying that's important is, one, he's saying we're not going to get action and we shouldn't expect action unless we mobilize, we take to the streets, and two, we have to talk about the economic benefits of climate change, how this would be an economic boon in the event we invested and subsidized clean, renewable technology. So it's why Bernie Sanders is the only 2020 presidential contender that actually gives me hope because he is our only only hope. Um, and I don't like to say things like that because it seems as if, you know, there's this cult of personality around Bernie Sanders. And I don't believe that that's the case because progressives have been very clear about their criticisms with Bernie Sanders, some criticisms with regard to foreign policy and Israel-Palestine. But with that being said, he's our only hope, not just for the United States, but the planet. So if we know what's good for us, we'll elect him president and get him through a Democratic Party primary in 2020 because I just don't know anyone else who has the political will and political intuition that Bernie Sanders has. Bernie Sanders recently appeared on CNN for an interview to discuss his upcoming book and he was asked about a particular passage in his book where he took shots at Donald Trump, and he went on to explain basically what Donald Trump is as a political figure. He doesn't have any core driving political ideology or no underlying philosophy that is guiding him as he makes political decisions. Simply put, he's a fraud. Whatever way the wind blows is the way that Donald Trump will be headed in. So Bernie Sanders explained why he took shots at Donald Trump in this book. And the way he analyzed Donald Trump was not only meaningful and impactful, but it was just spot on. So this is what he had to say about Donald Trump. In your book, you note sitting at the inauguration, listening to his inaugural address, and you noted it made you remark to yourself on what a 
phony and demagogue he is. Let me read you a passage here. Other than his racism and xenophobia, it's not clear that he really has any strong beliefs other than those uh, that are politically expedient. Did I say that? You wrote that. Well, it sounds good to me. I think it's right. What did you mean? Look, he has no political belief. He is a total phony and a political opportunist. I don't know if people know this. He now condemns legislation that I introduced called Medicare for All. Mm -hmm. Earlier in his life, he supported Medicare for All. This guy actually supported a tax on wealth. He was pro-choice. But he moves with the wind, and right now he is an extreme right winger because he thinks that's how you get votes. And what he is doing, which really disturbs me very much, above and beyond tax breaks for billionaires, above and beyond trying to throw 32 million people off of health insurance, all of which he is doing, he is doing what no president in modern history has done, and really trying to divide the American people up based on the color of our skin or the country we came from or our religion or our sexual orientation. That is outrageous. And what that book is about is what I and other progressives have been doing over the last two years to bring people together, not only in opposition to Trump, but to create an agenda that makes sense to farmers in Iowa and in Nebraska, where we are coming together around ideas that work for all of us. What does that mean? We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. Poll after poll shows the American people want a Medicare for all single payer system. We got millions of people in this country working for starvation wages. Got to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We've got to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. We got to make public colleges and universities tuition free. And instead of giving tax breaks to billionaires, you know what the American people want? They think billionaires and large corporations should stop paying their fair share. So this is how you think you beat President Trump? This is how I think Democrats move forward in bringing the American people together and creating an economy and a government that works for all of us, not just the 1%. In the event, we get that ideal situation where Bernie Sanders runs for president again in 2020 and he ends up winning the Democratic Party's nomination. I think that this is what we can expect to see from Bernie Sanders in debates against Donald Trump. And the reason why that's important is because I think that this is effective. Because nobody likes a politician who keeps flip-flopping on the issues. That's that's what George W. Bush hit John Kerry with in 2004. It's what everyone hit Hillary Clinton with in uh, 2016. And it just is something that really turns off voters. So if Bernie Sanders can paint Donald Trump accurately so as this politician who simply takes political positions for purposes of political expediency... I think that can really do some damage, and it's one of the reasons why I believe Bernie Sanders is just the most well-equipped person to take on Donald Trump. Not only is he anti-establishment and has that appeal, but he knows how to criticize Donald Trump in a way that I think will stick. And look, I've said similar things about Donald Trump before because I think that we all see that he doesn't have a core political philosophy or ideology that drives him. But the way that Bernie Sanders says it, he words it in a way that makes it more concise and also more impactful. So his wording is important. He is able to simplify things that we're thinking that are more complex 
And I think that that's what's really going to resonate with voters if they hear that about Donald Trump, about how, oh, it was the case that he did support Medicare for all right before he was sworn in. He also was in favor of abortion. He also was somewhat liberal, economically speaking, before, and now all of a sudden he's a conservative because that's kind of where the country is headed. I think that that will really help to delegitimize Donald Trump in 2020. Bernie Sanders can say, instinctually, he went into the White House wanting to do Medicare for all. In fact, he demanded to know why we couldn't expand Medicare to cover everyone. But it was Paul Ryan and other Republicans from within that establishment that talked him out of it. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's espousing anti-Medicare for all rhetoric and he's publishing op-eds in the uh, USA Today or was it Washington Post? I think it was USA Today um, where he supposedly wrote them um, talking about how bad Medicare for all is and how much it would cost as if he cares about the deficit or debt. But look, Bernie Sanders can say whatever happened to that Donald Trump in 2016 that said we're going to cover everybody. Whatever happened to that Donald Trump in 2016 that said we're not going to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security and then bragged about it and then called on Mike Huckabee for copying him after he was the first to boldly state that we're not going to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. These are attacks that Bernie Sanders can use against Donald Trump that will be persuasive to the American public, which is, again, why I think that when it comes to the field of 2020 presidential contenders, Bernie is that individual that knows how to defeat Donald Trump because he's got Donald Trump pinned down. Other individuals within the establishment and even fairly progressive individuals like Elizabeth Warren, they don't necessarily know how to deal with Donald Trump. You know, Joe Biden, he's trying to position himself as the anti-Bernie so he can kind of be the answer to Trump or the antithesis to Donald Trump. When back in 2016, he was saying relatively nice things about Bernie Sanders and we know that he's doing this because he's trying to be that tough guy, that no-nonsense guy, because if Donald Trump is, you know, uh, someone who is kind of a no-nonsense guy, not, not necessarily a tough guy, but someone who just kind of says what he thinks, then Joe Biden thinks maybe he can emulate that strategy. With Elizabeth Warren, you know, she doesn't know how to handle Trump because we all saw what happened with the DNA thing, right? She thought that she can shut Donald Trump and, and her critics up by releasing the results of her DNA test, and that backfired monumentally against her. So there's really nobody that knows how to deal with Donald Trump because nobody has took the time to analyze Donald Trump and pin him down, except Bernie Sanders. He's analyzed Trump. He knows what makes him tick. He goes whatever way the wind is blowing. He has no driving political ideology, and he's a fraud. He's a political fraud. Bernie gets that, and he responds accordingly. You see, the thing about Donald Trump is that if you want to defeat Donald Trump, you have got to understand Donald Trump. You can't try to slay the beast unless you learn about its weak spots, okay? Anyone who's played a video game knows that. If you've played... <laughs> I'm going to sound so nerdy. If you've played uh, Shadow of the Colossus, you'll know that you can't just walk up to the beast and start swinging your sword at it. You've got to actually take the time to analyze your opponent and... Learn what its weak spots are. Bernie Sanders has done that. No one else within the Democratic Party has been able to do that. There's been suggestions by not just journalists, but strategists in D.C. that think, well, maybe if we run our own celebrity like Oprah Winfrey, 
that's what's going to be the answer to Trump, because if voters like celebrity, then if we run our own celebrity, maybe that's going to work. There's been others who said, well, look, let's go ahead and run our own billionaire. Let's run our own loudmouth. In other words, let's just try to run our own left-wing equivalent of Donald Trump, semi-left-wing equivalent of Donald Trump, and that's how we can beat him. But you're, you're missing it. You're missing the point. The reason why he was able to beat out 17, 18 Republican establishment figures during the 2016 Republican Party primary is because he had that anti-establishment appeal. He knew what they all didn't see coming. He knew that this was an anti-establishment election. He knew that people were sick and tired of the establishment, hence his rhetoric. So if you want to defeat Donald Trump, you've got to understand your opponent. And also, you need to know what is the antidote to right-wing populism and Trumpism, specifically. Bernie is the only person that gets that, at least to this point. I think that Richard Odetta, to his credit, is another individual that kind of knows how to take on Donald Trump. But Bernie Sanders is the one with the decades of the record and the street cred that really can make him the best bet to take on Donald Trump. He's the antithesis of Trumpism, and he's the individual that actually can beat Donald Trump because he knows how to run a campaign against Donald Trump because he fully understands Donald Trump. So if we want to defeat Trump, in short, we've got to back Bernie. If you're one of the few individuals that is still holding out hope that the benefits of the GOP's tax plan passed in 2017 will one day trickle down to you and other workers, I've got bad news for you. It's still not happening and you probably shouldn't expect it to happen anytime soon. In fact, workers aren't doing particularly well since they passed this tax plan, contrary to what they said would happen. Hmm. It's almost like trickle-down economics doesn't work has never worked and will never work. <laughs> and we've got yet another example as to why the GOP tax plan is not helping workers. As Julia Conley of Common Dreams reports, tax justice and labor advocates were among those who expressed outrage Monday at the news that General Motors, one of the corporate giants that benefited immensely from the Republican tax plan last year, would cut 15% of its workforce, shuttering production facilities in three states as well as Canada to trim costs. The automaker is closing five plants in Ohio, Michigan, Maryland, and Ontario, with plans to cut thousands of office jobs in January, slashing a total of 14,700 hundred jobs. The move comes less than a year after the Republican Party pushed through its tax plan, which offered a 514 million tax break to the company. According to the advocacy group, not one penny, 100 million of those savings went to enriching GM's shareholders. Contrary to the GOP's claims that the corporate benefits of tax cuts would trickle down to workers in the form of raises and bonuses. General Motors' decision to gut its workforce epitomizes the bad corporate behavior Republicans Republicans in Congress have incentivized for generations. Instead of using its massive tax savings to increase employee wages or invest in its workforce, GM is shuttering plants and cutting jobs to increase profits and further enrich shareholders, said Ryan Thomas, a spokesperson for Not One Penny. The American people will not forget that Republicans in Congress permitted these morally reprehensible and irresponsible
responsible actions. Meanwhile, GM has already spent much of the last year cutting its workforce, offering buyouts to 18,000 workers. So what's happening is exactly what liberals such as myself predicted would happen. It's not going to trickle down. Executives are going to pocket the money that they're receiving in the form of a tax break and workers are going to get screwed over. Now, last year, if you'll recall, there was story after story about companies like Home Depot giving their employees a one-time $1,000 bonus as a direct result of the GOP tax plan. Now, ask yourself this, how many of these stories have you been hearing about this year? How many stories has AP or CNN or even Fox News reported on about how a large multi-billion dollar company is giving another $1,000 tax bonus or any bonus to their employees because of Donald Trump and the Republican Party's tax plan? Zero. So what you saw last year as I pointed out, was nothing more than corporate PR. PR on behalf of the Republican Party to make sure that a highly unpopular bill, which did get codified into law, doesn't continue to be incredibly unpopular among Americans. So they would give their employees a one-time $1,000 bonus in order to gin up public support for the plan because if the American people saw how the Republican Party ostensibly did something that helped workers, when in actuality it made large multinational corporations a lot more wealthy, then hopefully by giving their workers $1,000 bonus in order to make you think this is helping workers, they would get more tax cuts from Republicans. Because shit rolls downhill. If Americans think that these tax cuts help them, large multinational corporations are going to continue to petition Republicans to give them more tax breaks because Americans like them and Republicans want to do what Americans like in order to get power in government and maintain the approval of America. So it's just one big circle of trickle-down economics. But unfortunately for them, Americans don't like these tax cuts. And now all of a sudden, we're not hearing anything about these $1,000 bonuses. What happened, CEOs? I thought you said that the GOP tax plan benefited workers and you were giving your employees $1,000 holiday bonuses because of the GOP tax plan. It's almost as if that was all bullshit and propaganda because you wanted people to think that tax cuts for you benefit them. Doesn't work that way. And most people realize that because I think most people have common sense. Giving tax breaks to, quote, the job creators, unquote, does not help normal Americans. What helps Americans is increasing purchasing power of them, making sure that average Americans have money in their pockets so that way they can stimulate the economy, so that way they can purchase the goods produced by these multinational corporations. But when you end up giving tax cuts to multi-billion dollar companies and some trillion dollar companies, what's going to happen? Well, their executives are going to pocket that money and that money will sit in their bank account and collect dust. They're not going to reinvest that back into the economy. And as a result, the economy becomes stagnant. Now, currently, that's not necessarily the case, but what we are going to see is another economic collapse if we keep doing trickle-down economics. 
because deregulation and tax cuts for the rich is largely what got us the 2008 recession and we are seeing the same type of thing happen again in the lead up to 2008 we're seeing that now so if we're going to see another economic crash you know who to thank the republican party and these large multinational corporations that lobbied for these tax cuts for themselves it doesn't help workers it never will help workers because guess what trickle down economics is bullshit it doesn't work the wealth never trickles down if you want to help workers you put the money in their pocket you don't have to give a tax cut to the ceo first to make sure that they give the money to workers no if you want to help workers give them a tax cut but we know that republicans didn't want to do that because the tax cuts that they included the few tax cuts they included for working class americans are set to expire but those corporate tax cuts they're permanent so we all know exactly why this is happening it's playing out exactly as we predicted it would play out trickle-down economics does not work and we're gonna learn that again the hard way because republicans are still hell-bent on giving large multinational corporations tax cuts and workers aren't benefiting from that the economy will suffer as a result of us living in an oligarchy and guess what we're probably still not going to learn our lesson and 10 years down the road we're going to do it again <laughs> because this is what we do in america we repeat the same thing over and over again even if it doesn't work because we don't necessarily care about the result we care about delivering money to our corporate donors that's what the republican party stands for and in large part that's exactly what we're seeing in action now so this is definitely disappointing and i really hope that the gm workers who are getting screwed over now didn't buy into this idea that trickle-down economics and the gop tax plan would benefit them because we're seeing that in spite of their company getting a huge gift from the republican party it's not benefiting them it's not helping them um all too much now which is unfortunate for them we have officially reached a new low in the united states of america both in terms of morality and stupidity because we're now openly using violence against migrant women and children who are fleeing violence now for those of you who spent any time on the internet today then you know exactly what i'm talking about because there's this picture that's been making the rounds that shows the united states using tear gas against a migrant family and as you can see this woman here who is seeking asylum in the United States is running away from tear gas with her two children. Now, as AP reports, migrants approaching the U.S. border from Mexico have been enveloped with tear gas after a few tried to breach the fence separating the two countries. U.S. agents shot the gas, according to an Associated Press reporter on the scene. Children were screaming and coughing in the mayhem. We're using tear gas against children doesn't matter that there are children in the crowd they still decided to use tear gas now let me remind you that these are individuals who are seeking asylum most of these migrants are headed here from honduras because honduras recently became overwhelmingly violent after a coup that took place in 2009 that the united states tacitly backed but nonetheless that doesn't matter these people are seeking asylum and that doesn't even do anything to convince us that we need to at least hear them out 
Now, what took place was there were about 500 migrants in Tijuana near the U.S. border. They were chanting, we aren't criminals, we are hard workers. Now, you're probably going to see footage of the protesters getting rowdy and throwing rocks at the border fence, and reportedly some even threw rocks at U.S. border agents as well. And I'm sure that images like this will be used to justify our use of tear gas against hundreds of migrants who were essentially protesting in order to encourage the U.S. to hear their cases sooner. But in the midst of all of this coverage, you're probably not going to hear their side of the story. You're probably not going to hear about how most of them were peaceful. And you're also probably not going to hear about how these migrants are being harassed in Tijuana, even physically assaulted by locals in Tijuana who are punching them, throwing stones at them because they dare to show up in their area to try to better their lives and petition the U.S. government for asylum. Now, as you hear all the reasons why these migrants are bad and deserved it and how they're criminals, even though that's not true, keep in mind that regardless of the details here that you're going to hear in the mainstream news, there's no justification for using tear gas against a crowd when there are women and children in that crowd. Young children, toddlers who could be harmed, physically so, by that tear gas. That's a level of violence that is so barbaric that there is no justification for it. But wait, because our government is going to do just that. They're going to try to justify our use of tear gas against children. Because as Vice's Tim Hume explains, U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen on Monday defended the use of tear gas fired by U.S. Border Patrol agents at a group of migrants who tried to illegally cross a border fence. Nielsen said the gas was fired to disperse the migrants and that U.S. would not tolerate, quote, lawlessness. The incident, which left migrant families with children scrambling to escape the toxic was condemned by Democrats and activists. So this is essentially the state of America in 2018. We are now resorting to using violence against children in order to dissuade their parents from coming into our country and applying for asylum, which is legal, mind you. Anyone can show up to a legal port of entry and apply for, for asylum. And that's what these people are wanting they're only saying at a minimum please just hear our case but we're not even doing that we're using violence against them and their children and understand that this is particularly egregious because our country we love to create refugees we like to meddle in the affairs of other countries and create violence but when people flee that violence when we create refugees we don't want to do anything to help out said refugees. It's not just these Honduran migrants, it's Syrian refugees. And now we are seeing officials in our country scramble to justify the use of tear gas against a crowd that had children in it. Now, Ron Colburn, the former Border Patrol Deputy Chief, joined the right-wing chorus of defenders who tried to justify the use of tear gas against children and assured us that there's really nothing morally reprehensible about this. In fact, it's morally defensible because there was a legitimate reason to use tear gas and also because it's really not that big of a deal. When you look at, uh, and you look at the story where apparently uh, hundreds of them just decided, you know, we're, we're frustrated, let's make a run at the border. There was a small hole they were able to puncture through the border wall uh, and they uh, hurled all sorts of rocks, etc. 
at the Border Patrol agents and then they fired the tear gas. Is that warranted? Absolutely. And to clarify, the the type of deterrent being used is OC pepper spray. It's literally water, pepper, with a small amount of uh, alcohol for evaporation purposes. It's natural. You could actually put it on your nachos and eat it. Uh, so it's a good way of deterring people without uh, long-term harm. Well, that settles it. It's perfectly morally justifiable for the U.S. government to use tear gas against children because it's really not that harmful. You can even put it on your nachos. Okay, well, if that's true, then do it. Put tear gas on your fucking nachos and eat it on national television. Prove to us that you believe the bullshit that you're espousing. Do it. Eat pepper spray on your nachos. Do it. You're not going to do it for the same reason why the lobbyist famously wouldn't drink the poison that he referred to as safe. Because OC spray is harmful and he knows it's harmful. In fact, a Florida deputy was suspended just last month for spraying grade school children with it. Four children to be exact. And the sheriff in that county said that was punishable specifically because OC spray is a quote, serious tool that we use in the field, adding it has no business being deployed around the children we are supposed to keep safe. And the reason why we don't use pepper spray on children is because regardless of how, quote, natural you say it is, it can cause permanent problems for their vision. You don't know which children in that crowd had asthma. They are at a significantly higher risk for problems and complications when exposed to tear gas. But I mean, I'm trying to explain logic and reason and facts to these people when just the mere fact that we're entertaining whether or not it's justifiable for the U.S. government to use pepper spray against children in and of itself, is an absurd discussion. We shouldn't have to be talking about this. We shouldn't be trying to dig for any justification we can find because the government should not be using tear gas against fucking children. I mean, have we lost our minds in this country? Since when have we condoned violence against children, physical violence against children? Never mind the economic violence and support for genocide that harms children in countries like Yemen. But we are now directly using violence against children ourselves, and people are trying to actually find justifications for it. This is a new low for the United States, and I'm embarrassed to be an American, because this is not how a modern egalitarian country is supposed to act. We don't disperse tear gas into crowds that have children in them. I thought that that was something we all just understood. I thought that that was a universal moral objective of everyone. We protect children. We protect those who can't defend themselves. But apparently in 2018, that's not the case anymore. After the midterm elections on November 6th, progressives everywhere were fired up at the prospect of Barbara Lee potentially becoming House Speaker. But when we learned that she didn't want to be House Speaker and when she was instead planning to run for a different leadership position, we adapted, even if we were disappointed, and we accepted that, yes, her running for this leadership position 
would one day position her to run for speaker. So we can wait a couple of years if it'll pay off, if it means we'll get Barbara Lee eventually as House Speaker, which would be phenomenal. But guess what? We couldn't even get the bare minimum because House Democrats voted and they rejected Barbara Lee. And as Sarah D. Wire of the Los Angeles Times reports, California Representative Barbara Lee on Wednesday lost her bid to become the first black woman elected to a House leadership position and the first woman to lead the House Democratic Caucus. By a vote of 123 to 113, Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York won the race to lead the caucus for the next two years. Both are members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Jeffries was just elected to a fourth term in Congress and is a co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, which helps Democrats develop their messaging. His entry into the race for the fifth highest leadership post was seen by some as bypassing an unwritten rule that members rack up more experience before seeking one of the coveted jobs. Lee had taken a more traditional path of holding successive leadership positions over more than two decades in Washington. Several Democratic members, including Adam B. Schiff of Burbank and James E. Clyburn of South Carolina, the most senior African-American member in the House leadership, refused to say who they voted for in the secret ballot. Lee said she felt, quote, some disappointment only with the institutional barriers that I recognize that were out there during this campaign. I'm really disappointed in that knowing that was an uphill battle. So make no mistake about it. This is the message that the Democratic Party is sending to you again. If you're a progressive and you want your values represented in the leadership of our party, go fuck yourself. If you're a black woman and you're one of the most loyal voting demographics to our party and you consistently secure our victory and you want someone who looks like you represented, if you want more visibility for black women in leadership within the Democratic Party, go fuck yourself. We're not going to give that to you either. You can't have what you want because we have to make sure that we don't allow people who are even remotely progressive to get anywhere near leadership because that makes our donors feel really uncomfortable. That's the message they are choosing to send to us. And it's not the first time they sent us this message. They're choosing to give it to the guy who's been in control of the Democratic Party's messaging, which, I mean, if you're in control of that, you're obviously doing a terrible job since the Democratic Party still doesn't really have a coherent message. And also, they allowed him to leapfrog Barbara Lee, who's been working her way towards leadership, trying to go through the ranks, trying to be a good Democrat, and she still got the cold shoulder from Democrats. They just, they can't help themselves. They see enthusiasm at the grassroots level for anyone, and they immediately, instinctively think we have to defeat that person. I mean, the party is a fucking joke. The Democratic Party is nothing more than a shell of what it used to be. They have been corrupted, and they are rotten to the core, and this is another example of that. Now, as Ro Khanna puts it, our caucus today denied Barbara Lee the honor she deserved of being chair, but the petty politics of members of Congress will never be able to deny her her place in history. She towers above those who rejected her. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And this is a vote that was uh, done in secret. So we don't even know which cowards voted against Barbara Lee, who was clearly the superior option, who the grassroots 
supported. You know, if Democrats resisted Republicans with even half the level of fiercity and the temerity that they resist progressives with, we would be in a lot different of a place right now as a country. But instead, they use all their efforts to push back against progressives while letting Republicans steamroll them. Democrats are absolutely uh, useless. They're just there to keep the seats warm so Republicans don't occupy those seats. That's basically all they're good for. To expect any sort of policy that's progressive from them, at this point, it just seems like a joke. They're just seat warmers. That's all they are. Would you be pushing for um, things like single payer? More of the progressive agenda? Well, I, I'm a pragmatic progressive. I think that we all want to move toward universality of health care coverage. Uh, but we have to start by strengthening the Affordable Care Act, uh, by lowering the high cost of prescription drugs, uh, and by making sure that we can protect people with pre-existing conditions. Those were our promises uh, to the electorate. That's what helped us win the majority. We've got to fight for the people specifically on the issues that we have discussed with the American people as part of our closing argument. In the least surprising news ever, Chuck the Cuck Schumer got played by Donald Trump and the Republican Party yet again. For what, the fifth time now in 2018? Because we all know that Donald Trump is huffing and puffing and demanding $5 billion for the border wall that he wants to put on our southern border he once said that Mexico would pay for. And throughout this process, he's trying to get Democrats to give him the money and agree to this money. So is Chuck Schumer holding strong? Well, this is what he said when asked if he would agree to $5 billion in funding to a border wall. Number one, we are for strong border security. The bill we originally uh, uh, put together in 2013 had $40 billion, and we are for strong border security. We've made numerous proposals. Number two, the $1.6 billion for border security negotiated by Democrats and Republicans is our position. We believe that is the right way to go. Third, if there's any shutdown, it's on President Trump's back. First, left to our own devices, the Senate and House could come to an agreement. Second, um, the, Democrat, the Republicans are in control of the presidency, the House and the Senate. A shutdown is on their back. Stick to the $1.6 yes. That is absolutely pathetic, albeit amazing somehow at the same time, because it's clear that, you know, with his posture, the way he's using his thumb, and moving it up and down, he thinks that he's standing strong. He thinks he's being tough. He's trying to make it seem as if he's not actually cowering in fear to the Republican Party and Donald Trump in the way he usually does. We will be strong. We will not give Donald Trump $5 billion. We will, however, give him $1.6 billion for the border wall. 
And if you're agreeing to give him even a single penny for the border wall, what is it that you're going to get in return, Chuck? What are you getting in return? What policy concessions are you getting from the Republican Party to agree to $1.6 billion in funding? Money we could use to alleviate homelessness, um, eliminate some of the student loan debt. What exactly are you getting in return? And the answer is, obviously, he's not getting anything in return. Now, once he realized how angered liberals were, he took to Twitter to assure us that it's really not what it looks like, saying, Our position has been clear from the beginning. Democrats and Republicans have a months-old agreement in the Senate. $1.6 billion for border security, not a concrete wall, or increases in detention beds or ICE agents. We should stick to this agreement. If POTUS interferes, he is responsible for a shutdown. Oh, okay, I see. So you're giving him $1.6 billion for border security, and you're telling him, I'm giving you this money to deal with immigration, so that way you'll be assisted in your xenophobic immigration policies, but you can't spend it in the way I say. I'm sure he's definitely going to listen to you. I'm sure that when you use your thumb and go like this, Chuck, he's going to be shaken in his boots. He's going to be terrified, and he'll definitely not use that to fund the wall on the border, which is specifically why he's telling you he wants $5 billion. And I love how he's trying to talk tough on the prospect of a government shutdown. What happened the last time, earlier this year, when the government was shut down and Democrats in the Senate essentially had Republicans backed into a corner, when it seemed as if Americans would blame Republicans for that? Chuck Schumer caved within two days, and he showed that he was too much of a coward to stand up for dreamers, but, you know, don't worry, because he said that caving was important since Mitch McConnell promised him there'd be a vote on DACA. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, um, Chuck Schumer, Mr. Master Negotiator. Have you guys had a vote on DACA yet? Have Republicans actually came through on any of the promises that they've given to you? Chuck Schumer has got to be the most feckless leader in the history of American politics, definitely in the history of the Democratic Party. He is the worst leader ever. I mean, I've never seen someone who caves at even the slightest semblance of pressure from the Republican Party. He doesn't want to deal with it. He just caves immediately, and then we all get fucked because he doesn't have a spine. And summarized perfectly by Frank Dale of Think Progress, in addition to clearing the way for numerous Trump judicial nominations, Schumer has condemned fellow Democrats while calling for more civility in politics, enabled the repeal of financial regulations put in place after the Great Recession, praised Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, praised the president for moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel, backed the confirmation of Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, FBI Director Christopher Wray, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, U.S. Ambassador to the UN Nikki Haley, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, Defense Secretary James Mattis, Veteran Affairs Secretaries David Shulkin and Robert Wilkie, and Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. In other words, if we literally replaced Chuck Schumer with one of those magic eight balls, there would be a higher statistical chance that we'd have a leader that says no to Republicans.
Because, I mean, even the bare minimum that we expect from him, we don't get. Oh, what's that? You want more federal judges approved? Here you go, Republicans. You want funding for your border wall, Trump? Here you go. Here's a billion dollars. I won't give that to progressives who want Medicare for all. No way. But here you go, Trump. You can use this to build a wall that's completely unnecessary and won't actually address the root issue here. It is baffling to even comprehend how someone as cowardly as Chuck Schumer was able to get himself into a position of leadership. I mean, there are people in the Senate that can maybe negotiate with Chuck Schumer and actually maneuver him out of his leadership position and get him to think he came away victorious. In fact, someone should do that. Sherrod, you should try to challenge Chuck Schumer. We need a new leader in the Senate because currently we just don't have a leader. In fact, no leader, I think, would be better than Chuck Schumer. Simply writing no on a sign and putting it in Chuck's chair would be more effective than Chuck Schumer himself. Because he gives in to the Republicans time after time after time. And I remember right after the 2016 election, he talked about how excited he was because this really presents Democrats with an opportunity to challenge Republicans, and he's going to hold them accountable. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. I am not afraid of the Republicans, and we're going to hold their feet to the fire. I am actually excited about this opportunity. <clears throat> well, two years down the line, you've essentially blended in with Republicans, Chuck, because you are not just enabling them, but you are doing their bidding now. You're giving them funding for a border wall. And the problem is that the media is also aiding and abetting Republicans by giving cover to Chuck Schumer as he is complicit with the Republican Party's extremist right-wing agenda. I mean, look at this op-ed. Quote, Democrats should just give Trump his wall. Wow, just, just give it to him. Just give him the wall. Medicare for all? You don't get that, Americans. But this wall? Just give it to him. Just shut up and give it to him so you can get back to the other issues. As if he wouldn't push for something else he wanted. Which then they would tell Democrats to cave as well. And as Emma Viglin puts it, I look forward to Politico's article entitled, Republicans should just give Democrats Medicare for all. When is that set to be published? October 42nd, negative 0.5 BC? Exactly, because we would never see that. We only see willingness to cave from the left, the supposed left. And uh, Chuck Schumer, again, to provide any funding whatsoever is a joke. And he actually thinks he's standing firm in offering $1.6 billion to Donald Trump for something as idiotic as a wall that would make people who are xenophobic feel better. Wouldn't actually curtail immigration in any meaningful way whatsoever, but it would make them feel better. He's willing to give them $1.6 and he thinks he's strong because he didn't cave to Trump's $5 billion. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if he did just offer Trump the $5 billion and then tell us that he came out of this with, you know, a really great deal that Mitch McConnell is going to promise a vote on something that will never happen. Um, you're not going to get concessions, and as a result, you need to block and obstruct. But Chuck Schumer is conservative himself, so he's not too angry that Republicans are getting what they want, because deep down, he is conservative. Ever since Beto O'Rourke lost narrowly to Ted Cruz, 
There's been a really strong push by centrist Democrats to get Beto O'Rourke to challenge Donald Trump in 2020. They want him to run for president. In other words, he couldn't beat Ted Cruz, but they now want him to take on the guy that actually was able to beat Ted Cruz. He's going to beat the guy that beat Ted Cruz, even though he couldn't beat Ted Cruz himself. <laughs> Makes sense. That's their logic. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to shit on Beto O'Rourke too much here because I think he was a phenomenal candidate in the state of Texas. I'm in no way downplaying what he managed to accomplish in a very deep red state. I mean, he almost defeated Ted Cruz. And had he won, I would have been ecstatic. But as a presidential candidate, that's a little bit different. I'm a lot less enthusiastic. Nonetheless, people really, really want Beto 2020 to become a thing. And when I say really, I mean they are screaming from the rooftops about Beto O'Rourke. If you've been on Donut or Centrist Twitter lately, you'll see polls that they're putting up where they're pitting Beto against Bernie and Biden, and Beto is coming out on top in these polls. You'll see sentiments from centrists about how inspirational Beto is. And it's not just the Twitter sphere, because also in DC circles, it seems as if they have Beto fever as well. They're hearing that enthusiasm loud and clear. And the Democratic Party donors, they're not willing to get behind any horse just yet because they're all anxiously waiting to see whether or not Beto 2020 is going to become a thing. And excitement among the Democratic Party establishment and in centrist circles for Beto has become so loud, some are even starting to give Joe Biden the cold shoulder. And I'm not kidding about this. Some journalists are essentially not so subtly suggesting that we should maybe just throw Joe Biden under a bus in favor of Beto and in order to, most importantly, defeat Bernie, because we definitely shouldn't nominate anyone over the age of 70 in 2020. And even though that ageist sentiment might discount their boy Biden, well, it takes out their biggest target, Bernie Sanders. So if pushing this ageist notion that we shouldn't nominate anyone over the age of 70 because old people are terrible, if that hurts Biden, they don't care because they've got Beto now. They don't care about Biden. They've got Beto and they want someone who they think can beat Bernie. And the only one who even comes close to grassroots enthusiasm is Beto. So they're putting all their eggs in Beto's basket in hopes that he will run and take on Bernie Sanders. And guess what? He's like Barack Obama, but white. <laughs> so you can be you can be disappointed by white Obama now. Isn't that exciting? To have him probably run as a progressive and then let you down and govern as a conservative Republican? Or a moderate Republican rather? Man, that's just that's so appealing to me. So as David Siders of Politico reports, sparked by his narrow defeat in a Texas Senate race, Beto O'Rourke is scrambling the 2020 presidential primary field, freezing Democratic donors and potential campaign staffers in place as they await word of his plans. Even prior to O'Rourke's meteoric rise, many Democratic fundraisers had approached the large number of 2020 contenders with apprehension, fearful of committing early to one candidate. But the prospect of a presidential bid by O'Rourke 
York, whose charismatic Senate candidacy captured the party's imagination, has suddenly rewired the race. O'Rourke, who raised a stunning $38 million in the third quarter of his race, is widely considered capable of raising millions of dollars quickly, according to interviews with multiple Democratic money bundlers and strategists, catapulting him into the upper echelons of the 2020 campaign. Michael Watts, a San Antonio-based lawyer and major Democratic money bundler, said several donors and political operatives in Iowa, after hearing from other potential candidates in recent days, have called to ask whether O'Rourke is running, a sign of his impact in the first-in-the-nation caucus state. They're not wanting to sign on to other presidential campaigns until they know whether Beto is going, Watts said. And if Beto is running, what good progressive Democrat wouldn't want to work for Beto O'Rourke? He said, I can tell you that there has not been this kind of level of electric excitement about a candidate since Barack Obama ran in 2008. Now, that last part is pretty telling because they're essentially saying, let's all just pretend that 2016 never happened. Let's pretend that what we saw Bernie Sanders do in filling stadiums with thousands upon thousands of supporters and getting more millennial votes than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined didn't happen. That was all just a dream. Put it out of your mind because Beto is doing what Obama did, not Bernie Sanders, because we want the white Obama. <laughs> and they look, they love Obama because Obama was a prolific fundraiser. And what did he do as a direct result of said fundraising? He gave exactly to donors as they paid him for. He was a corrupt corporate Democrat who was basically my first taste of disappointment because I voted for Barack Obama because I was old enough to vote for the first time. I was 17 in uh, 2004, so I couldn't vote. So I voted for the first time in in 2008, and I enthusiastically cast my vote for Obama, voted for him again in 2012, and realized that what I got was not what I was sold. It was a bait and switch. And I really, I experienced cognitive dissonance because I just thought, look, Obama's kind of disappointing me. In fact, he's really disappointing me, but I know that if we just vote to reelect him again, the mask is coming off. He's going to be super liberal this time. Wow, I learned my lesson. But they like Beto O'Rourke because he is kind of like a, a white Obama. He's charismatic, he's charming, um, and he kind of has the same demeanor as Obama. He's mild-mannered, he is, you know, non-threatening, and I think that they believe that can be appealing to voters. But what's weird to me about this push for Beto all of a sudden is that if you're going to choose from any of the 2018 midterm Democratic Party stars... Why would you go for Beto and not someone like Andrew Gillum? Because Andrew Gillum, strategically, I could see why they'd want him to go against Donald Trump because Andrew Gillum could actually defeat Donald Trump in debates alone because we saw what he did against Ron DeSantis. He may have lost narrowly, but the debates were just basically a master class in how you deal with Republicans. So I think that someone like Andrew Gillum more so than Beto O'Rourke, would be better suited to take on a Republican like Donald Trump. He kind of set up this blueprint as to how you take on Republican Party extremism and white supremacy. So I don't understand why they'd go with Beto and not Andrew Gillum, because that would at least make sense to me. And what they're also overlooking is that Beto O'Rourke, even if he had that grassroots enthusiasm in Texas for good reason, 
I don't know that he's going to get that on a national level. He doesn't firmly commit to policies like Medicare for All or tuition-free public colleges. He hasn't really said much about foreign policy. He has indicated that he'd be weak against Donald Trump, and even though I admire him for taking $0 in PAC money, I mean, we need someone who's going to be fierce if they want to beat Trump. But what did he do after he called Ted Cruz lying Ted? Within a couple of days later, I think he expressed regret, wondering if he went too far. Are you joking? You have to hit them and hit them hard. So it's another reason why I'm a little bit puzzled as to why they'd go with Beto and not Andrew Gillum. If they wanted anyone who would play patty cake with the establishment, who'd still pass as a progressive in many circles. But nonetheless, they are trying to shove Beto O'Rourke down our throats in order to presumably stop the rise of Bernie Sanders in 2020. But the question is, does Beto even want to run? Because during the campaign, he said he wasn't interested in running. And the answer is, it's a definite maybe. Because all of a sudden, he's not ruling it out. He states, quote, Amy and I made a decision to not rule anything out. So he's changing his tune and he's doing what Democratic Party presidential candidates tend to do. They bowed down before the apartheid state of Israel, and he pledged his support for them on Twitter, very boldly so, which is definitely a first step in this process. So he might actually run, but I want you to understand something. This phenomenon, this Beto 2020 phenomenon, is cooked up mostly by the media and Democratic Party strategists and donors and elites, all in an attempt to divert enthusiasm away from the true progressive in 2020. Bernie Sanders. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 Because they're essentially saying, please, for the love of God, progressives, whatever you do, do not vote for Bernie Sanders in 2020. How about Beto? Does Beto look nice? What about this guy? What about this guy? What about Elizabeth Warren? They're trying to do every single thing they possibly can do, pull out every single trick to get us to vote against Bernie Sanders. But I am telling you, if you are a progressive and you want Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities, a Green New Deal, there's no other candidate that you should support in 2020 in the primaries besides Bernie Sanders. Not Richard Ojeda, not Andrew Yang, because we need the guy who has the 30-year progressive record, who is progressive in saying the same thing before most of us were born. He's saying the same thing. He, he never changed his tune. He's the strongest candidate, not just for progressive policies, but to take on Donald Trump. But with that being said, it may be strategically beneficial for progressives if Beto does run, because I do think even if he might peel off some votes away from Bernie Sanders, by and large, he's going to take more votes away from centrists, and it certainly would behoove us to have as many centrists running in 2020 as possible, so that way they all split their votes while we all line up behind Bernie. So 2020 is going to be very interesting, and it's very clear that they see Beto as the best bet to take on Bernie and defeat him. Could he beat Donald Trump? I don't know, because he's he's kind of showed that he's weak. He can hit someone hard sometimes, but then he's going to walk that back if it seems a little bit too mean. We need someone who's going to be straight to the point, who's going to be boldly progressive, and I'm sorry, that's just not Beto O'Rourke. So stop trying to make Beto 2020 a thing. Again, phenomenal candidate in Texas, but as a presidential candidate, 
things change. My standards increase dramatically. And he absolutely does not meet the bare minimum in terms of what I expect from a progressive presidential candidate. If you don't support Medicare for all, I don't support you. It's that simple. So as you all know, the Senate passed a joint resolution using the authority that they have under the Congressional Review Act to undo the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality. And then once that passed, it went to the House. And now the deadline that they have to actually vote to restore net neutrality is quickly approaching. And when I say it's quickly approaching, I mean it's approaching on December 10th. After that window of opportunity passes, we will no longer be able to restore net neutrality using the Congressional Review Act. And it was always going to be something that was an uphill battle to begin with, but the mere fact that another opportunity to save the internet is passing is a little bit discouraging. Now, there are two steps to actually getting this to pass in the House. First is we've got to make sure that the entire Democratic Party within the House is unified and they support this. And second, we need to make sure that there's some Republicans that come on board and support this. The problem is that we can't even get past step one. We can't even make sure that Democrats hold strong on this simple issue that the overwhelming majority of the country supports. And as Kaylee Rogers of Vice reports, the Democratic members of Congress staying mum on net neutrality have all taken campaign contributions from major telecom companies, according to Federal Election Commission filings. In May, the Senate passed a joint resolution under the Congressional Review Act that would overturn the Federal Communication Commission's decision to scrap free internet rules last year. That resolution was then sent to the House, and the Democrats introduced a discharge petition, which, if it gets 218 signatures will force the House to vote on the resolution, even without the recommendation of a committee. The Dems have until December 10th to get 218 signatures, which would require every Democrat and a few Republicans. So far, they have 177 signatures. That leaves 18 Democrats in the House who have yet to sign the petition, which is, again, the only hope Congress has of voting and passing this resolution to restore net neutrality this year. A mother board review of FEC filings shows that each of the representatives has taken thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from one or more major telecom companies, including AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and the National Cable Television Association and ISP Trade Group. The CRA approach was always a long shot. Not only did the resolution have to pass both chambers, including a GOP-dominated House, but it would also have to be approved by President Trump if it passed. Still, the silence coming from so many Democratic members is deafening, especially on a topic that has such widespread public support. The fact that they have also pocketed a few thousand from the same corporations that want to keep net neutrality repealed is worth noting. Here are all the Democratic members of House who have yet to sign the petition, and an example of some of the companies that have contributed to their campaigns. This includes Brendan Boyle, Robert Brady, G.K. Butterfield, Matt Cartwright, Jim Costa, Henry Queller, Dwight Evans, Vincent Gonzalez, Josh Gothheimer, Gene Green, Tom O'Halloran, Mary Gay Scanlone, David Scott, Brad Schneider, Kirsten Cinema, Philemon Vela, Pete Visklosky, and Frederico Wilson. 
and all of these shills took money from Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, as well as the NCTA. So, um, if you're wondering why they haven't signed on to this joint resolution to restore net neutrality, that's exactly why. If you're a lawmaker and you're supposed to represent Americans and represent your constituents, you don't refuse to sign on to something that they overwhelmingly want unless you're a bought and uh, paid off shill from the industry. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So again, in order to have any chance of getting this through, we need every single Democrat to hold strong and we need to get Republicans on board. But we couldn't even accomplish the bare minimum, which is getting Democrats to hold strong. So, you know, this isn't super surprising, right? I think a lot of us were expecting this to die in the House, but at the same time, it's frustrating to see 18 so-called Democrats going against the will of the people. If democracy is literally in the name of the party that you're a member of, maybe you should try it out once in a while. Maybe try representing people. Because I don't get how you can be against net neutrality unless you're a shill. Hence why these people are against it. In fact, maybe they don't even take a strong position on net neutrality or they're personally in favor of net neutrality, but they just think that campaign contributions from AT&T, Comcast, Verizon is more important because that's what's going to be more personally beneficial. They may have, you know, a fucked up internet like all of us, but that will help them in their own careers. So it's a selfish move that they're uh, doing here in choosing not to act and ignore the overwhelming majority of the people. So really, our only hope here is through the American legal system, is if we, you know, the lawsuit that includes 22 att attorneys general, if we can actually sue them into overturning their overturning, their repeal rather, of net neutrality, then that's the chance that we've got. But we'll just have to wait and see because, you know, the CRA isn't panning out as uh, we were hoping it would. And one of these individuals, Kirsten Cinema, by the way, she is going to be a member of the Senate now. So she's getting a promotion as she gives her constituents the cold shoulder. And she's just one of them, right? But I mean, she's someone who kind of rose to national prominence after winning her Senate seat, surprisingly so recently. So um, yeah, it's just, it's disappointing. It's not too surprising. So I don't want you to feel too down about this, but it just, we have to shine a light on things like this because you need to see how corrupt these individuals are, how corrosive money in politics is, what capitalism has done to our democracy and how influential these internet service providers are. If they want a policy concession, it doesn't matter that the overwhelming majority of the population wants something else. It's always going to be that the large multi-billion dollar companies get what they want and we lose every single time. That's what happens when you live in an oligarchy. That's what happens when you let capitalism run amok in your country to the point where it starts corrupting democracy itself. It starts eating the country itself. In surprisingly good news, Bernie Sanders' resolution to end United States' support to Saudi Arabia as they carry out a literal genocide in Yemen has just advanced. And I'm honestly not really sure how to wrap my head around this story because it's difficult to comprehend good news coming from the United States Senate. It's almost always bad news. But here we have 
an example of them actually listening to the will of the people and what we want them to do. The last time this happened was when they passed the CRA joint resolution to undo the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. But here they are. They're advancing this uh, resolution to stop our support to Saudi Arabia. And they're undermining the White House. Now, as Elena Score of Politico reports, the Senate delivered a stunning rebuke to the Trump administration on Wednesday, voting overwhelmingly to advance a measure yanking U.S. support for Saudi-backed forces at war in Yemen. The 63-37 to vote, in which 14 Republicans joined every Democrat in voting to move forward on the bipartisan Saudi resolution, came hours after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis failed to sway key undecided senators with an appeal to hold off lest they upset progress on a ceasefire in Yemen. The Senate has to take another vote expected next week in order to formally open debate on U.S. policy towards the Saudis that seeks to punish them further for Khashoggi's killing. But even the success of Wednesday's initial vote was a jab at the White House, which is defending the Saudis ahead of the G20 summit that Prince Mohammed bin Salman will attend. The White House issued a statement warning of a recommended Trump veto if the resolution were to pass, stating that it would harm bilateral relationships in the region and negatively impact the ability of the United States to prevent the spread of violent extremist organizations. So the justification that the White House is using to issue this veto threat is just downright disgusting because there's no justification for us to continue supporting Saudi Arabia. I mean, we're literally giving them the bombs that they're using on children. No justification for it. So this veto threat is disgusting in and of itself, but I do want to go to Bernie Sanders who released a video on Twitter that gives us a little bit of details about the status of this resolution and um, what's going to happen from here. Well, let me thank all of the people at the grassroots level throughout our country who helped us today win a major vote on the path toward ending U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. Uh, but let me caution everybody, uh, given the extremely obscure and complicated rules of the United States Senate, uh, this fight is far from over. Uh, what we won this afternoon was a vote to discharge our resolution out of the Foreign Relations Committee. And that was a major, major victory. Uh, but what we have got to do uh, is continue our effort uh, to make sure uh, that we end up uh, winning the resolution to proceed, to go forward. And then finally, we have got to win a uh, final passage on this uh, legislation. And what we did today was of enormous significance. This is a really important step forward. And what this fight, as you all know, is about is three fundamental things. Number one, uh, what's going on in Yemen now is a horrific humanitarian disaster. Um, we're talking about the reality of 85,000 children in the last few years starving to death, starving to death. And what the United Nations tell us, tells us is that millions more people are facing imminent starvation. Uh, in Yemen today, which has always been a poor country, but in Yemen today what we're looking at is 10,000 new cases uh, every single week of cholera, which then lays people open uh, to all kinds of other illnesses uh, and death. So what we are saying is that the United States of America, in our resolution, has got to get out of that war. And instead of being part of the killing 
uh, in Yemen. We have got to do everything we can to bring peace to that country uh, and humanitarian aid so that we stop this horrific humanitarian disaster. Second thing that this resolution does is it tells the despotic uh, dictatorship in Saudi Arabia that we are no longer going to be an appendage to their adventure, military adventurism. Uh, while Yemen has always been a poor country, the famine and the death there right now, the people dying, is a result of Saudi-led intervention in an ongoing civil war. And what we are saying in this resolution, which move forward today, is that the United States will not continue to be part of that intervention. And the third point that we are making is that after decades and decades where the United States Congress, under both Democratic and Republican presidents, has abdicated its constitutional responsibility to be the body that under our Constitution determines whether the United States engages in war. It's not the President of the United States who decides whether we get into a war in Yemen or anybody else, any place else. Constitution, Article I of the Constitution is very clear. It is the Congress. So what this resolution does for the first time is it says Congress is going to take back its uh, constitutional responsibility uh, for engaging in war. So this is a very, very big deal. But we have got to continue going forward together. I wish I could tell you exactly when the next votes on this resolution will be. That's something that is being worked on right now in the Senate, as you may know. Any one senator can object to a unanimous consent uh, and prevent us from going forward at, in a way that we would like to. So we don't know exactly when the vote for final passage uh, will be. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Uh, maybe even tonight. Uh, maybe next week. I don't know. But let us keep going together. Let us put pressure on the United States Senate and let us make it crystal clear uh, to the world that the United States of America is not going to continue to be part of this horrible uh, Saudi-led intervention uh, in Yemen's civil war, which is causing so much death and so much misery. Let's keep going together. Thank you very much. So there you have it. This is absolutely fantastic news. And I'm honestly shocked that this was able to advance. That means that there were some Republicans that decided to do the right thing. Maybe for the first time in their lives. So this is great news. And I really hope that this does pass. Even if it gets vetoed, Donald Trump, put your stamp on this. Show the American people that you are in favor of genocide in Yemen and you have absolutely no morality whatsoever. You care more about weapons and the money we get from selling weapons to Saudi Arabia than the actual lives that are being lost in Yemen currently. And that's absolutely disgusting, but I don't want to go into a rant because I, I think that when we rarely see good news coming out of DC, we need to take all the wins and celebrate them and hang on to them because this is great. So, um, yeah, um, I think I've said this is great like 10 times throughout the course of this video, but it's, it's honestly shocking and I, I'm a little bit taken aback by this news today. Brian Fisher of the American Family Association is a right-wing evangelical radio host 
And in this clip I'm about to show you, you're going to see him explain his hypothesis as to why dinosaurs likely went extinct. It's a mashup of right-wing and evangelical talking points, Noah's Ark, and overall stupidity. So be prepared to lose a substantial amount of IQ points here because this is a doozy. I have no hesitation saying this because I do not doubt the word of God. We have no hes I have no hesitation in affirming that man coexisted with dinosaurs. Now, people will tell me I'm a Neanderthal, I'm a Cro-Magnon, this is superstition, it's old wives' tale. I don't care because my trust and confidence is in the Word of God. So that Word of God indicates that we walked the earth with dinosaurs. Well, where are they? How come they didn't survive? Well, I think what these scientists are saying about the rhino is probably the explanation. Remember that when the flood came, you had little tiny dinosaurs on the ark. There's no reason why they couldn't have come on uh, the ark. You got a, uh, uh, you know, a couple of young male and female rhinos and a couple of you know, young female and male Tyrannosaurus rexes. So they're tiny. They can be on the ark. And so why didn't they survive? Why didn't they survive after the flood was over? Well, what I'm suggesting is that when the flood happened, remember, it just wiped everything out. It just destroyed. It swept across the planet, and it destroyed vegetation. It knocked down trees. It wiped out grasslands. It wiped out vegetation. All of that was just wiped out by these floodwaters. And so when these giant dinosaurs, who were what? They were, they were vegetarians. They were herbivores. We know from looking at their teeth that they ate uh, plants. Now, the Tyrannosaurus was obviously a carnivore with the kind of teeth it had, but what's it going to eat? It has to eat herbivores, right? What else is there to eat? He's got to eat animals that survive on Earth. Well, if all of the vegetation is wiped out, you know, what are the Brachiosauruses? What are they going to eat? So they die out. They just literally starve to death, and the Tyrannosauruses don't have anything to eat, so they starve to death. It's not rocket surgery, ladies and gentlemen to suggest a rational explanation for what happened to the uh, larger uh, animal. He actually said, quote, it's not rocket surgery. It's a level of cringe that gives you a physical response where your body tenses up and you just genuinely feel bad for the person because they said something so idiotic and <laughs> it just, wow. It's not rocket surgery. <laughs> Do we have rocket scientists that are, you know, performing surgery on rockets, Brian? He also said very boldly, man coexisted with dinosaurs. So we lived, you know, in peace with D these T-Rexes who were hungry and wanted to rip our fucking heads off, but they didn't. We lived alongside dinosaurs. Okay, now his general theory is that, well, look, the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct is because there was the flood. They put whatever tiny dinosaurs on the ark that they could fit on the ark, um, but dinosaurs that were left behind didn't survive because the flood came and it destroyed vegetation, thus all the dinosaurs starved to death. But when you try to 
go through the steps as to what you think could have happened logistically speaking in the event there was a great flood that flooded the entire planet there's still some lingering questions that he fails to answer and the reason why i'm talking about this the reason why i'm not making this a weekly dose of stupidity segment is specifically because this is basically like this question surrounding noah's ark was the start of me becoming an atheist it was a question that i took to my pastor asking about how noah's ark was able <laughs> to contain and carry dinosaurs and how they didn't rip noah's head off and all the other animals head off like t-rexes like how, how did that happen and the answer that i got from my pastor was not satisfactory and i think that this is a jumping point for a lot of christians i think that some christians kind of explain away the stupidity of noah's ark by saying you know this this isn't meant to be taken as a factual story it's simply an allegory more or less right but even if that were the case what's the point of this what message or principle are you supposed to take away from the allegory of noah's ark because even that doesn't make sense that god gave people free will then got pissed when they didn't do what he wanted them to do and then killed everyone and then felt bad about it and then showed them a rainbow i mean what's the moral that you take away from the story there is none it's incoherent it's a narrative clusterfuck <laughs> it doesn't make sense but if you're actually trying to explain how noah's ark was a real thing that happened like brian tried to do here there's still some questions that he is not able to answer who who was it on noah's ark was it just noah's family how did they end up multiplying without inbreeding how did the species continue to rise to be what seven billion people today 9 billion people by 2050 how did that happen how are we not walking around with third eyeballs right now because of all the inbreeding that had to have taken place in order for humanity to continue how did noah catch two of every animal i mean think about this you're back in a time where there's no cars there's no airplanes and how do you do that how do you go to australia to gather the kangaroos and then go to greenland to get polar bears and then head to madagascar to get all the different types of lemurs i mean you have different animals living on different continents how could you possibly do that all while simultaneously building an ark you could say well god put it in the animals to go to the ark but how would they cross the ocean did they ride on a whale how i mean logistically speaking it makes no sense or did they believe that pangea was still what the earth looked like back then but do they even believe in pangea do they know about pangea i mean you can't come up with an explanation that's feasible that's logical because logistically speaking noah's ark is impossible furthermore if noah's ark was real how did they go about catching all of the thousands of different types of bug species that existed all around the world have you ever tried to catch a butterfly it's really fucking hard so if you're trying to actually parse out these details about what could have happened if you're trying to discuss the feasibility of noah's ark how have you not considered these questions brian these were questions that i had when i was a child and indoctrinated into christianity and guess what happened this was the start of my atheism because some things in the bible don't make sense because the bible does not make sense and i asked my pastor about this and i you know i asked when did dinosaurs exist because i'm getting some conflicting reports when it comes to science and the story of adam and eve because wouldn't 
you know, if we lived alongside with dinosaurs, wouldn't T-Rexes being at the top of the food chain just eat us? I mean, I've seen Jurassic Park. Have you? Look, here's the thing. Religion is stupid. I think that's kind of what I'm <laughs> I'm getting towards here. And I couldn't not talk about this story because it was just such, it has such personal significance to me because the story of Noah's Ark is so stupid. And the people who wrote the Bible kind of fucked up by including that in there because it doesn't make sense. And it really is, I think, a portal to doubt and skepticism about the Bible because it's a story that is just so stupid, so comical, so childish that you can't take it as something that factually happened if you're a reasonable human being if you're even the slightest bit of a deep thinker and the rebuttal will always be well look it's all about faith you just have to have faith because some of these things don't make sense we get it mike this doesn't make sense noah's ark doesn't make sense but that's why faith exists god puts these types of inconsistencies in the bible to test your faith but if you're correct in saying that eternal life is at stake wouldn't God not want to mislead us? Isn't it kind of dickish to put these inconsistencies in that could potentially lead us on the path towards skepticism and potentially down the route towards hell? Isn't that kind of a shitty thing for God to do? And then there's the last rebuttal that, look, you may not understand it, Mike, but understand that the Bible gives me hope. And I get that for some people, right? I, I, I truly understand that. There's no way that I would tell a sick family member that, they're going to die and nothing nothing is going to happen. But for people alive now who say, this is what gives me meaning, you know, what do you, what do you have to look forward to if you think that you die and nothing happens? Well, it changes your view on the world because you, you stop thinking about the prospect of an afterlife and you realize that there's a tremendous amount of value in this life right now that you're living. Your life right now may very well be the only life that you're going to be able to live. You're here for a fraction of time in a universe that is 14 billion years old. So what are you going to do in that time? You make the most of your life. I like that Brian is trying to <laughs> trying to fill in the blanks here where the Bible, you know, left you to guess because it shows that when people try to explain things that happened supposedly in the Bible, they fall flat on their fucking faces. And this is for the better, because I think the more atheists in the world, um, the more people who believe in logic and reason, I think the better off our species will be as a whole. But certainly, I don't, I don't look down upon anyone who's religious. I just... You know, I, I want them to know what they're missing if they aren't someone who is an atheist, if they do subscribe to a religion. That's it. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the show. As usual, I want to end by thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to survive and thrive. You guys are absolutely amazing, and I love you so much. Thank you. I will see you next week. This has been The Humanist Report, and I'm Mike Figueredo. Take care.